We're going to be in Joel, the book of Joel, chapter 2. If you're wondering where Joel is, I know. Um, Joel... Joel is one of the prophets you're going to find um, near the book of Hosea. If you're asking where Hosea is, just look at the, just look at the index. You'll find it. Um, <laughs> review of the book of Joel chapter 2. We've been in a series um, last couple of weeks called The Long Church. We've been speaking about what does it look like when we do something and we keep on doing it. How many of you know that just because something is old doesn't mean that it's good? We don't want to just be an old church. We want to be a long church, not just a church that's been around for a long time, but that hasn't done anything good, but a church that's been around for a long time and has been faithful to each other and faithful to God. We do that by being an everyday church and an until heaven church, that we are going to be committed to each other and to God every single day of our lives. And we're going to be committed to each other and to God until heaven comes back. We're going to be in Joel chapter 2, and this morning's message, I believe, is going to be challenging for some of us. Maybe it might bring up some feelings, but I believe the Lord is going to help us a lot in Joel chapter 2, verse 12 through 13. And it says this, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over a disaster. What I want to title this message for us this morning is the long repentance. The long repentance. I want to speak about three things. One, return. Two, rend. And three, receive. Return to God, rend your hearts, and receive his blessing. Will you pray with me for a minute? Lord, we love you so much. And Holy Spirit, we are welcoming you in this place. Saying, if you're not welcome in any other place, Lord, be welcome in this place. And if you're not welcome in any other hearts, Lord, be welcomed in this heart. We understand that no substantive change can come from us, but it has to come from you. And so we acknowledge you, we welcome you, we ask you, God, to do what only you can do. Father, we love you so much. And more importantly, you love us. Holy Spirit, would you empower us to live, look, and love more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The long repentance. The long repentance. Repentance might be a word that um, doesn't sit well with some of us in the room. Maybe when you think of repentance, you think of somebody standing on a street corner with a big sign yelling at people with seemingly very little love. Maybe when you think of repentance, you think of how it's been used against you, or maybe you felt like it was this thing to get you to change just your actions because someone didn't like what you were doing. Or maybe you see repentance as this kind of like embarrassing thing that I don't really want to touch because it's a sign that I did something wrong. Or maybe you see repentance in a way where it still needs to be filled for you. There is no information about it. I want us to take a look at a situation in the book of Joel where we find the, the people of God, specifically Judah, 
being called to repentance once again. And the longer I think about repentance, the more that I consider that repentance isn't just an action that unbelievers do to become believers. Repentance is a practice that believers do every day to follow Jesus. Some of us believe that repentance was that thing I did so that I got saved and now I'm good. I repented from my sin and now I follow Jesus and I'm fine. And that absolutely is part of it, but that's definitely not the end of it. There is a daily act of repentance that has to go on in the life of every single believer. Why? Because we see in the scriptures that God has called the disciples, the people of Israel, and even the church today to a regular and consistent repentance. (laughs) Why? I believe we find God calling the people of God to repentance regularly is because the closer that you get to God, the more aware you are of your sin. People who are unbelievers don't know Jesus. They might have some recollection of, I might not be doing as well as I can be doing, but there ain't no way that I'm as bad as maybe the scriptures tell me that I am. But the longer you walk with Jesus, the closer you get to Jesus. The closer you get to Jesus, the more aware you are of Jesus. The more aware you are of Jesus, the more, you wear, the more aware you are of your sin. And you see this discrepancy that says, he is incredibly holy and I am incredibly unholy. And he is totally righteous and I'm totally unrighteous. Repentance is a daily practice for believers. And Eugene Peterson says it like this. He says, repentance is the first word in the Christian language. It sets us up on the way to traveling in the light. It's a rejection that is also an acceptance. A leaving that develops into an arriving and a no to the world that is a yes to God. We find ourselves in Joel with the people of God who have now um, come out of captivity. And Joel is an interesting book because you find Joel and there's no distinctive markers on exactly when the book of Joel was written. We find in some prophets that it was during the reign of this, or the king when this, or maybe it was building when this. And you have these figures, or these actions, or these historical moments where we can tie in and know exactly when this book was written. But Joel doesn't necessarily name any kings, any specific sin, any specific time. The only reason we kind of know around when Joel was written is because he speaks about Jerusalem and the temple. And he references many other books in the Old Testament. So we believe that this is done after the exile of the people of God from Babylon. King Cyrus, if you remember, he now has given the decree for the people of God to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. If you remember in Ezra, we find that Ezra gives this prophecy and he says that now after the 70 years that Jeremiah prophesied, they'll leave Babylon, go back to rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. Ezra teaches the word of God in the Torah. And we find that Nehemiah rebuilds the wall. And because Joel references all of these things, the temple and Jerusalem, we believe it's around that same time. Joel is speaking to them, and it's interesting because there's not a specific sin that Joel recounts for the reason why the tribe of Judah and the people of God are under such intense plague and famine. And it says the day of the Lord, which is actually convicting them of sin and actually pushing them towards repentance. So we find them in this circumstance where it's regular, where 
the people of God now are trying to find themselves um, going back to God. And even though we don't have a specific mention of what sin they were committing, we know that the human heart is deceitfully wicked. And because it's deceitfully wicked, our hearts are not always trending towards God. They're always trending away from him. And the people of God were trending away from him yet again. And so we get the introduction where it says in the book of Joel, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart. I think it's really important that we understand the first things come first. He says, return to me with all of your heart. Why? Because whenever there's a distance between you and God, it's not because God left you, it's because you left God. So it's not God that needs to return to us. It's us that needs to return back to God. And if you think about it, what an invitation. Because God is not saying, return to the law. Return to morality, you heathens. Return to sacrifices because you haven't been sacrificing enough. Return to generosity because I've given you a lot, so you should be giving a lot. Return to your... No, no, no. He's saying, return to me. The invitation and repentance that God is giving to the people of God is not a returning to religion. It's a returning to relationship. He's saying, would you not return to all of the other things that you have associated with me? Would you return to me? Whenever we're asked to return, it's because we've left God. Hmm. He's saying, stop acting out of your own interests. Stop doing things your way. Stop and do things my way. And then he says, we need to return with fasting and with mourning and with weeping. As if to say, we need to return with fasting. That is, every biblical repentance needs to be paired with action. And return with weeping and with mourning. That every biblical repentance needs to be paired with emotion. That emotion and action paired together equate to a biblical repentance. And if we forsake one, we can say, well, we know, we know the, <laughs> it's interesting. If we miss one of these, we can trick other people into thinking we're repentant. We, we can put on the things and the idea of religion or maybe even some tears. But if we actually divorce the idea that God is asking us to repent with fasting and mourning and weeping, action paired with emotion and turning back towards God, we can start to fool everybody around us into thinking that we're truly repentant except God. And people might say, oh, that's a repentant heart. That's a repentant man. They're doing all of the things, but they're missing the whole point. They're returning to maybe religion, but they're not returning to God. He says, return to me with fasting and with mourning and with weeping. <laughs> I feel like the Lord told me to say in this message that regret is not repentance. Just because you felt bad about something does not mean you turned away from something. And just because you wished it didn't happen or that you knew it was wrong and you don't want to do it again does not mean you've repented from a thing. Regret is not repentance. And religion is not repentance. Just because you came back to church does not mean that you've repented from your sin. Just because we've started to do moral things that we believe that God is pleased with does not mean that we've repented from our sin. It's action paired with emotion 
that causes us to turn in action towards God and away from us. <laughs> it's a thing that reaches deep into our soul that causes us to change from the inside out. And don't get it mistaken, God wants you to change. There are a lot of uh, maybe circumstances in our minds, culture, and world where we think, no, just stay exactly as you are. You are perfect just the way that you are. And if I could lovingly tell you that is not true. You are not perfect just the way that you are. You are loved just the way you are, absolutely. God loves you. He accepts you. He brings you into his family. But God does not leave you how he found you. God brings you in and he expects you to change. Not to change in any direction, but to change to be formed to look more like him. Whenever we approach scripture, it is never right to approach scripture thinking or to approach church thinking or to approach God thinking, how much of myself can I maintain? It is always saying, how much of myself do you want me to give up? Because it is never me that God wants to maintain. He wants to form me to look like him. Return to me, he says. If you remember in uh, Genesis, um, one of my favorite families, um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you remember in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 30, around that time, we're going to look and give a little uh, expose of the life of Jacob. If you remember him, he was the son, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had a brother, twin brother named Esau. Esau was the older brother. And when uh, you find and look at this family, it was a, a dysfunctional family if you've ever seen one. And as you see this family, you see that Jacob was not supposed to get the birthright, but Jacob was the one who um, swindled his brother out of the birthright. He was the second born and he wasn't supposed to get it, but he tricked his brother, actually just swindled him out of it because of his brother's time of need. Then what he does is he goes to his father, Isaac, who in his old age was pretty much blind and he tricks his father, Isaac, out of giving him the double portion blessing. After he does that, Esau realizes, comes to his senses and said, this, that was a horrible deal. I just give my birthright away to my brother. He doesn't deserve it. He just tricked my dad into giving him a double blessing. I need to go and get him. He's so scared. His mom's like, yo, you just got to go. Go out to your uncle's house and just stay over there. He leaves, runs away to his uncle's house. He leaves and it says that Esau, the only thought in his brother Esau's mind that gave him any peace was the thought of killing his brother Jacob. Now, your family might be crazy, but your family ain't that crazy. <laughs> this is the only thought that made Esau feel good was killing his brother, his twin brother, Jacob. He runs away, goes to Laban's house, spends at least 14 years there, marries Rachel, marries Leah, a whole different story. Then actually leaves Laban because it kind of didn't turn out well. Jacob was blessed. Laban was kind of mad. He leaves, goes to a river, and it says in Genesis 32, he finds himself all alone. Why? Because he realizes now Esau is coming back after him. He hasn't talked to him in years. And the last thing he heard is the only thought that made him happy was wanting to kill Jacob. He sends his wife over to one side of the river, another wife over to the other side of the river, two wives. Oh my goodness. He sends them all away. He's by himself. And then it says 
that he wrestles with a man, the angel of the Lord, until the morning. Angel of the Lord touches his hip, changes him forever. His name is changed from Jacob to Israel. Then his brother Esau comes after him. He sees him. Jacob, I assume Israel is like, I'm about to die. This is game over. But what Esau does is he says, brother, I missed you. I want to bless you. Here's some goats. Here's some servants. Go in peace. I love you. Israel is changed forever. And it's interesting. I tell that whole story to say because Jacob went through a lot in his life. I mean, family struggles like you've never heard of. And Jacob never changed through all of it. Jacob was still the guy who took and swindled and cheated and lied and usurped and just managed to, 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 to grab everything that he wanted when he wanted for his entire life. It wasn't the disappointment from his father in tricking him into giving him a double blessing that changed Jacob. It wasn't the consequences of tricking his brother into giving him his birthright that changed Jacob. And it wasn't even the fear of losing everything when he was all alone that changed Jacob. It was an encounter with Jesus that changed Jacob. And some of us still believe that disappointment, consequences, and fear are good motivations for change when they've proven to be false. How many of us still think sometimes, maybe if I'm so disappointed, I won't do it again. I don't want to disappoint everybody around me, so I'm going to change. Maybe I don't want the consequences of my actions to influence the future that I really want to have, so I'm going to change. I don't want to have the risk of losing everything I ever worked for, so I'm going to change. All of those things are worldly motivations to get us to change, but they don't stick. The only thing that changed Jacob wasn't disappointment, consequences, or fear. It was simply having an encounter with Jesus. You see, God wants to change you. And God wants you to change. <laughs> and God doesn't want you, God doesn't want sin to break you. It's not that he lets you go through all these things so that you're broken. God wants you to be broken over sin. He wants your heart to break over sin. And Jacob encountered the person of Jesus and he was changed forever. What I'm believing for us today is not that you would confront God about your sin, but that God would confront you about it. Because if you look in Genesis 32, it's the weirdest sentence. It says this, left alone, Jacob was, and a man wrestled with him until the break of the day. Where did the man come from? He just woke up and started wrestling. What I would love to happen in this service is you said, I didn't even come in here wanting to change. I wasn't looking for change. I was looking to be encouraged. And all of a sudden, a man shows up in your life and you are wrestling with him. He changes you. Your name is changed. Your identity is changed. And now from here on out, you didn't even come in here looking for anything to change. But all of a sudden, you encountered a man. And that man wrestles with you. And you say, I can't stay the same. Jacob to Israel says, return to me. 
return to me. Repentance is a, is a turning away from one thing and a turning towards God. And you find Jacob and Israel being desperate for things to change. But just because you're desperate doesn't mean you want things to change. You can be desperate and want to stay the same. <laughs> just because your life is trash doesn't mean that you're looking for your life to actually, you for, for you to actually change. Maybe you're just looking for your circumstances to change. And God is saying, what if the change I'm trying to bring isn't in the circumstances? What if the change I'm trying to bring is actually in you? Being desperate and wanting to change are two different things. You can want the pain to stop and still not want to be healthy. And God is saying, I won't let you settle for that. Health is going to come from turning away, action, meeting, emotion, turning away from yourself towards God for a real biblical change. <laughs> a changing of your mind, knowing that you have committed a holy injustice against God because of your sin. And you are realizing who he is and who you are. And now it evidences in a changed heart, which is a changed action. Jesus says, you can tell a tree by the fruit that it bears, which is to say, whatever comes out of something tells you a little bit about that thing. If you really want your life to change, there will be a fruit of repentance coming from it. And what I've realized about scripture in living my life is that God will do a lot with repentance, but God won't do a lot without it. You want your life to change? Repent. Do you want to experience God's power in your life? Repent. Do you want to walk in the purpose that God has for you? Repent. Turn away from yourself and turn towards Jesus. <laughs> he says, repent and turn to me. Return to me with all of your heart. With all of it. And we're a church that adamantly believes that when God says all, he means all. <laughs> this is one circumstance. Whenever you see all in the Bible, return to me with all of your heart. The great commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Maybe you find in Proverbs, he says, trust me in all of your ways. Whenever you see all, God means all. And these are circumstances where God is saying, I value quantity over quality. What do I mean? God is looking for all of you, not the best of you. And some of us reserve giving God some of us because we don't think it's good enough. We don't think that he'll want it. And let me tell you something. When God says all, he means all. He's not saying, wait until I get better and then I'll present myself to you. I'm going to clean myself up. And then when I'm good enough, God, then you can have me. No, he's saying, I want every broken part of you, every hurting part of you. I want every mangled part of you. I want every part of you that you don't like about yourself. He says, return to me with all of your heart, with weeping and with fasting and with mourning. He's saying, return to me. And then he says, and rend your heart and not your garments. Return to me and rend your heart. It's really interesting because the, the Jewish culture that you would find during this time is that whenever they were in deep distress, or deep anguish or pain. It was tradition to rip your clothes 
It, it was almost like, a, like an outward expression of, of, of what was going on on the inside of you. Saying, I'm so distraught and hurt and in pain that I'm going to rip my clothes to show everybody else how hurt that I am. And it was a sign, and I think it was a pretty healthy expression to not keep things on the inside, but let the emotions that you're feeling go on the outside. But Joel says simply here, he says, don't rip your clothes. He says, no, no, no. God is not asking you to rend your clothes. He's actually asking you to rend your heart. Why? Because God knows that there can be a talk of repentance without any actual truth of repentance. Joel knows that you can rend your clothes without rending your heart. And God is saying, I know you have the appearance of religion, but there's no substance of it. I know you have the appearance of repentance, but there's no substance of it. You're really good at ripping your clothes and letting everybody else see how religious that you are. You're really good at showing the idea of repentance without having the heart of repentance. And God is saying, I'm not looking for the appearance of change. I'm looking for a substantial change on your heart, inside your soul. Don't rip your clothes. How about you rip your heart instead? How about you let your heart be broken over sin? Not just your clothes. Not just the appearance of it. What if you actually let God break your heart for what breaks his? What if you let your heart be mangled over the fact that Jesus Christ had to die because of what you did? What if there was actually something that you felt and realized and recognized that my life is completely insufficient and I can't even have communion with God? And I say, God, I am, I'm without hope if you're not here. And that breaks my heart. I don't know what to do with myself. And Joel is saying, let all of the other stuff come, but let your heart be broken over your sin. Why? Because God wants communion with you. And it says in scripture that sin separates us from God. From the beginning until now, what sin has always done is it has always separated us from God. But God is a relational God. He doesn't want you to be separated from him. If you look in scripture, one of my favorite um, uh, names for the people of God is the bride of Christ. And you find that specific language in Ephesians, but you find the theme throughout scripture where you find um, all of these circumstances where the people of God have been sinning against God. And if you look in Isaiah, Jeremiah, the prophets, even if you look in the book of Revelation, you find that the sin that they were committing against God, the term that the scriptures use is adultery. That's the word. It says you've committed adultery against God. You've cheated on him. You've been unfaithful to him. And it, it cuts you to the heart because you're like, wait, boo, I thought this was about like rules and good and bad. And, and if I did the right thing and didn't do the wrong thing. No, no, no. Church, God does not see you simply as somebody to rule over. He sees you as somebody to love. And so your sin isn't seen as secession away from a kingdom, but unfaithfulness to your lover. It says it's adultery, a spiritual kind of adultery that is unfaithful to the one who's been faithful to you. 
So he's saying, I don't want you to be separated from me. And remember, it's never God that left us. It's always us that left God. He says, rend your heart. Realize that I am holy and you are not, that I am righteous and you are not, and you have left me. Not my rules, not my religion, not the sacrifices, not all the actions that come along with being a Christian. You've left me. You've been unfaithful to me. And it breaks God's heart. He says, so I'm not looking for your actions. I'm not looking for all the aesthetics and the appearance of religion. I'm looking for your heart to be broken. (laughs) He wants communion with us. He's not looking for a surface level change. He's looking for a a deep change. I was um, in the gym working out. And after I got done with my workout, I went into the sauna and so I'm chilling in the sauna, having my time, and then somebody walks in. And you, you ever just, like, see somebody walk in, and by the way they said hi to you, you knew it was going to be a long conversation? <laughs> That's what happened with this guy. And see, so he comes into the sauna, and I'm chilling there, <clears throat> and he's like, hey, man, what's going on? And I was like, oh, hi. <laughs> So we start having this conversation and, and he all of a sudden starts going on with everything that's wrong in our country. And he's like, man, this needs to change. And you know what I would do if I was in charge? Like those types of things. You know what I would do if I was in charge and I would do this and I would do that. And he was this older gentleman and he starts saying all the laws he would change and all the things he would change and, and the law after law after law after law. And then after a while, I was just like, man, I've been here for like 15 minutes. And it, you know when like you're in a conversation and they just do not get the hint that you're done with the conversation? And I was on my fifth, like, man, that's crazy. And he just, like, kept talking. And I was like, I think I need to administer to this guy because God won't make him leave. And I can't leave. And so I was sitting in this sauna, like, 15 minutes sweating. And I was like, yeah, man, like, I get it. I think that laws need to be changed for sure. I think that we could fix things in our country, absolutely. But, man, like, I, I don't know, bro. I, I think that laws are sufficient to, like, help curve human behavior, but I really don't think that they can cure the human heart. I think Jesus has to do that. And, and he looks at me and he's like, yeah, but you know what I mean? Like, we just need to change the law. And I was like, that was a great point. Like, how did you not have a whole transformation just from that one line? And I was so, I was annoyed. And so we kept going on this conversation, thing after thing after thing. And I get out of the sauna and I'm just like sweating about to pass out because we've been talking for so long. And I realized that culture, along with ourselves, we have this idea and this belief that we change the outer will change the inner. But the truth is that something can have the appearance of change without having the substance of change. And God is asking for a deep heart change to go on within us, not just the outer. Don't just tear your garments, but tear your heart. It's this interesting thing that you look throughout scripture, the prescription for a changed life is not a better heart. It's a broken heart. God is not asking for you simply to be better than you were yesterday or for you to try harder than you did last week, or for you to be a better person than you were last year. What he wants inside of you is for there to be a broken heart that results in an actual change. We return to God, we rend our hearts, and then we receive. It says in the scriptures, 
Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. You see, repentance comes with a reception. You're going to receive something from God. And I fear that there are some of us in this room who still believe that the thing you're going to receive from God after your repentance is an angry God, a condemning God, one that's shaking his fist at you and saying, how dare you? What were you thinking? You know better. I trusted you. Like I gave you, you you were the guy, you were the girl. You fell short again. Are you, you said you wouldn't do it last time, last time. And now you're doing it again. And, And some of us still feel like God is a God who is strictly just judging, condemning you. And the reception that you're gonna get from your father is one of condemnation and rejection and saying, how dare you? But you look in scripture and that's just not there. I mean, you you see, he says when you return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and he is merciful and he is slow to anger and he abounding in steadfast love and he would relent over disaster. Church, what if the reception and what if God isn't trying to get you to receive fear and judgment and condemnation? What if he wants you to receive mercy and grace and love and compassion? You know, in the scriptures, it doesn't say that it's his rules that lead us to repentance. It doesn't say that it's fear that leads us to repentance. Or that it's morality or even blessing that leads us to repentance. If you look at Romans chapter 12, you're going to see the continual theme of scripture where Paul says it's actually his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not a God who's looking at you. Maybe like others have looked at you because of your sin and your shortcoming and your failure and your error and your wrong and your sin. He doesn't look at you the way that everybody else looks at you. He says, if you would come to me, I would do the work to change you and to redeem you. I don't know where we've gotten this idea that that, that repentance is something to be embarrassed about. No, repentance is the active work in the Christian life that says, God, I'm not enough. And I need to come to the merciful one, the gracious one, the one who's full of compassion. And the one who can, the only one who can redeem me. Church, would you stop taking the role of redemption and putting it on your own shoulders? Saying, I need to clean myself up before I get to God. I can't let God see me like this. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. We're going back to our roots. And we're saying, I need to fix it. I need to hide from him. He can't see me like this. I I knew I shouldn't have done it. And I did it. He told me not to do it. And I did it. I said I wouldn't do it again. And I did it again. And he's going to be so mad at me. No. What if he's a loving father who meets you with grace and compassion and loving kindness and says, child, stop putting all the weight of redemption on your own shoulders. Would you let me redeem you?
Would you let me change you? Would you return to me with all of your heart so that I can do the work of changing you? You know where we get this language? (laughs) He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You know where Joel gets that? He gets it from Exodus 34. People of Israel have been brought out of Egypt. They're about to go into the promised land. Moses is on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. They've experienced miracles and the plagues and their foes have been defeated and they get into the wilderness where they're about to go in the promised land. Manna and water from a rock and miracles. Moses goes up. He comes back down. Within a few months, they built a golden calf and started worshiping that instead of Yahweh. Moses is livid. He's so upset. He's saying, how how could you? How dare you? And then the Lord speaks this. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. As if to say, maybe you're sitting in this room and it's the night, the morning after your greatest failure. Maybe it's the morning after sin. Maybe you're still feeling the weight and the conviction of your sin. Maybe you just built your golden calf and you know you shouldn't have. And you know what God's response to you is? Come here. I'm full of love. I'm full of grace. And I'm full of mercy. And I'm slow to anger. And I'm full of compassion. And if you would stop doing it all yourself and come to me, I would change you into being who you've always wanted to be and who I have made you to be. What if we are a church of long repentance? It says every single day, Lord, I'm going to come to you with emotion paired with action, turning away from myself and towards you, that you might change me to be more like you. It's the long repentance. It's returning to God, rending our hearts, and receiving his mercy. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're a merciful God, that you do not give us what we deserve, but you withhold your wrath from us because you've already poured it out on the person of Jesus. That he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is not a pass to keep on sinning. We find Paul speaking in Romans, Lord, where he says, because grace abounds, should sin abound all the more? He says, by no means. By no means. But this grace that we've received from God ought to promote us towards living rightly towards our King. And Lord, we're asking that you would convict us of sin. Would the man meet us right now and convict us of sin? Turn us away and turn us towards that our lives might be changed for the purpose of you and for your glory and for our good. 
because you're compassionate and you're loving and you're gracious. 